Well, brethren, what sign, what particular sign helps other men? We know the Sabbath is a sign from God. It shows God where we are, where our hearts are. But what is the sign for men to know that we are Christ's disciples? I think you know what I'm going to say, but let's turn to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. And this is a very important principle, and I do want to talk about it today because it is extremely important. Jesus said in John chapter 13 and verse 34, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, brethren, the thing that made this a new commandment He'd already said that you're to love your neighbor as yourself way back in uh, Leviticus 19.18. That's when Christ gave the what is called the golden rule. That's not in the New Testament alone. That's in the Old Testament years before. But what that made this new, he said, love one another as I have loved you. That's the key. He set that example of love throughout his entire life, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. By this, you see what I mean? That becomes then a sign. And that's a sign to other people. Most other people don't know that we're Christ's disciples because we keep the Sabbath. In fact, at first that may offend them, turn them off, make them think we're odd or whatever. But if they see the tremendous love among us, especially those whom God is calling, obviously. The world out, the Chinese won't see that. They're way over there and way over here. But the people who are acquainted with the church of God that come around, if they see that, that is a tremendous sign to them and a very important sign. And I think we need to realize that how important that is. We have a great deal of that, and I'm not saying that we don't have it at all because we do have a lot of it. In the response we had to the Katrina Prices, people sending in money, and the people even we hear about people being thankful for the cards and prayers, you know, that are offered when someone's sick and we pass these cards around. All those things are very good. So I'm not saying we're not doing good. We can do good, but good's not enough. Let's do better. <laughs> and let's be not just good, but let's be outstanding in that. That's what God wants us to be. He really does. Back in the earlier days of the church, when I first came into Ambassador College, and I'm sure it wasn't as good then at all as it was way back in the time of Christ and the Apostles, obviously, but we did have a smaller group and there was a lot of love and there's sort of a feeling of, of a family in the church. And we've lost a little bit of that because we've been disillusioned. We've seen people leave the church. We've seen people take other people off into an apostasy. Our brethren have dropped away, all kinds of accusations, all kinds of things like that have made the brethren maybe a little bit more careful to love each other and just simply serve one another as much as they used to do. But there used to be a constant attitude, an atmosphere of love and kindness, helping each other. Brethren would constantly have each other over to their homes and have barbecues or just even, uh, you know, cookouts of various kinds and all kinds of things to help each other, serve each other. Every Saturday night, different ones of the brethren would be doing that. And they would help the sick and take care of people and all that kind of thing, probably more than we do today, because there was a new love. We often talk about the first love, you know, that people have when they come in the truth. And there was a lot of that back there. And I hope we can recapture a lot of that love and a lot of that zeal. A lot of you have a deeper love in a certain sense. I don't say all of you. I don't know all of your hearts. But I know you've had to endure lots of things. 
You are the survivors. <laughs> You've gone through the trials and tests of the church. But nevertheless, some of that early warmth and exuberance has worn off and we don't have the warmth and the kindness and the love and a sort of a feeling of family. I remember all kinds of people were just volunteering all the time to take care of, you know, women who were having a baby or women who were sick or those of us who had little children. And when my first wife and I had little children, why all kinds of people, not just the college girls, but older women and others would just volunteer and want to help. They just wanted to serve. And so everyone in the church seemed like a family. But it's such an important thing, brethren, because God talks about that as much as any other thing in the Bible. Going on in chapter 14, John chapter 14, Let not your heart be troubled, Jesus said. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. Now, all the way through the Gospels, when you read about God's house, Christ identifies God's house. Most of you know that. I don't have time for a sermonette on that, but his house was the Father's temple. The temple of God was the house of God. Remember, Jesus came and cleansed the house, cleansed the temple, and said, don't make my Father's house a house of merchandise. He was talking always that term meant the temple of God. And in the temple of God, there were various rooms. And as in the Capitol building, you know, and where the Congress is, they'll have a certain room that is for the vice president, perhaps. They'll have another room that is for the Senate majority leader and another room that is for the Senate minority leader. That is their office, literally a building, a room in a building. And it denotes the position that the individual had. So he's saying, in effect, in my father's house, in the temple God is building, which is the church, there are many different positions, many different jobs, opportunities for us to serve. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place, a position, an opportunity as a king or priest in God's kingdom for you. And if I go and prepare a position for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So we're being prepared for that position. We've got to learn to help each other, serve each other, love each other, because, brethren, if we're going to spend eternity together, do you want to be fighting each other for all eternity? Do you want to be jealous of each other for all eternity? Do you want to have this kind of, well, I don't know about him and all this kind of attitude? We've got to realize that. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Doubting Thomas always had to get a little extra instruction, it seemed like. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Christ's entire life showed the way. And if you study and drink into this far more than I can do in this sermon, but just with that thought in mind, how did Christ exemplify love? How did Christ exemplify kindness? How did Christ exemplify service? How did Christ exemplify sacrifice? All the way through you'll get a very thorough and very balanced view of that. Some people would think that love is being soft-headed. No, true love, well, of course, God says, if you love your child, you'll correct him. That's not a lack of love. And in dealing with others in the church, and we, we don't ordain, we ordain Mrs. Pyle because she'd been serving for decades, frankly, in God's church. We didn't ordain her just because she's good-looking. Now, her husband thinks she's the best-looking woman in the world, probably. I think my wife's the best-looking woman in the world, which is true. I really do. But that's not the point. We're trying to be objective. You see, it's not a matter of just do what you want to do without objectivity. 
We've got to be objective in love, and that's not uh, uh, not love, that is love. If you put someone in a position where they should not be, that's a lack of love, because they probably can't live, live up to, to that position, or they'll get in trouble in the position, or they'll hurt others in the position, or whatever. And, of course, that is a lack of wisdom and a lack of love when you understand it. Love is also wise in many different ways. But Christ exemplified that in so many ways. Christ talked about, or at least he allowed John to write in his gospel, and Christ inspired the Bible. He is the word. John was the disciple Jesus loved, indicating Jesus had a special, personal love for John. How come then he'd stab John in the back and put Peter over the church, in a sense, as the leader? Well, he didn't. Peter was better at that administrative position than John. He loved John more personally, but Peter had more drive. Peter had more overall leadership. And so John was able to be a deeper person spiritually in certain ways. As you read John's writings, you can see that. And yet he did not have that kind of ability, if you follow me, that Peter had. Each of us has our different strengths. And Christ had perfect love and perfect wisdom when he made many of those selections. I just want to emphasize that as we get into the sermon. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is that a lack of love? Is that vanity? No, he was God in the flesh. He's not showing a lack of love. You might say, well, why didn't, why didn't let God come to, to, to him through Buddha? Why doesn't God let come to him through Mohammed or someone else? Well, because they don't have the right anything. You know, they don't have the truth and they're not the son of God and their life could not pay for our lives and you can go on and on. I am the way. Jesus said that. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. God the Father is our Father. He has perfect love. Jesus said, Have I been so long with you, Philip, and you have not known me? You don't really understand fully who I am? You know, he was just another young man to these guys after a while. Sometimes they just took him for granted. Just as often our families will take some of us ministers for granted. We can't see like any great person to them because they see all of our human faults. And they see us around as just someone else. And that's the way the disciples were sometimes with Jesus. But here was God in the flesh right with them. You've not known me. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He was the perfect exemplification of God in the human flesh. If God the Father himself had emptied himself and come down into the human flesh, virtually every single situation that was faced by Christ, if it had been faced by the Father in the human flesh, would have been handled exactly the same. You know, that same mind, that same love, that same compassion. God the Father had come in the human flesh and been born by a different woman. Maybe he would have had a longer nose or been taller, or shorter, or fatty, or skinnier, or something else. That wouldn't make any difference. The love that was flowing out, the character that was flowing out, the spirit of service, the spirit of the character that was amplified would have been exactly the same. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So when you read about Christ and all the things that Christ did, it's vital that you realize this is God in the flesh. This is the perfect man exemplifying perfect love. And, of course, when he rebuked the Pharisees, 
He said to them, you know, how, how, how dare you upset people? How can you escape the damnation of hell? He told them when they were deceiving people or turning people aside. Very, very blunt with them. And yet that was in love because they were hypocrites and they were really perverting God's way and hurting people. He did that correction in love to wake them up. He wouldn't destroy them. And eventually he's going to give them a real opportunity they perhaps did not have in the great white throne judgment. But in the meantime, he had to expose them for what they were, hypocrites. And so he did do that. And uh, so he who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? That's a very important principle when you think about love or when you think about Christianity or anything like that. Brethren, what is God's kind of love? That's really the sermon title I have today. What is God's kind of love? A lot of people mistake love. Of course, they talk about love. Hollywood talks about it in the movies and television. They don't really know anything about love. Basically, what they talk about is lust, sexual lust, or infatuation, or whatever. You know, I see this pretty girl across the crowded room and all this kind of thing. Love, of course, as Mr. Armstrong has explained and we've always taught in the Bible shows, is genuine outflowing concern to where you want to give, you want to help, you want to serve this other human being. Outflowing concern. Certainly in marriage, there needs to be an element of chemistry. You can't share your life and want to have children with and, and have as your mate and everything someone you don't have that chemistry with. But you'd better have this genuine outflowing concern, outflowing, not get. I want to get this pretty girl. I want to get this handsome man. I want this guy to take care of me and get me rich and make me feel important and buy me fur coats. Or I want this uh, this uh, pretty girl as a, a trophy wife, as some of the wealthy uh, Donald Trump type individuals sometimes do. You know, they want some pretty girl to show themselves off. That's not love. That is lust. Lust, vanity, human infatuation. Love is outflowing concern. So love is not just eros or erotic sexual love. And it's not just human affection and warmth or charm. A lot of Hollywood types have a lot of human love and human charm. And I've always wished I had a lot more of that. And a lot of you have too. It would be nice if we were just all walking around and just exuded all this warmth and charm and everything else. That'd be wonderful. But a lot of times our whole personality is formed by the time we're seven or ten years old and you can't suddenly change that. But what you can change is the attitude from the inside out and that begins to reflect out in what you do, you see, in a genuine way of outflowing concern for your immediate family for your neighbors, for your brethren, the people you work with, let's say, for your brethren in the church, and finally your nation, and finally flows on out to the whole world. I try to have love the best I can, and I'm sure you do too, even thinking literally about the whole world. I know that's my responsibility. How can we reach to the extent we are able to the brethren in India, the people in India, and their brethren in the sense of being fellow human beings? How can we reach the people in China? How can we reach the people through Europe and the Middle East? How we've got to get out there and help these people. We want to do that. So we've got to think of that love flowing all over the world to every human being. And yet concentrate, of course, upon our brethren, upon our family, but not neglect the others. So it's not just a human affection. Love is not some kind of oozing humility as, for instance, the Thai Buddhists 
exemplify. I remember Dr. Hay has told me in the past, a dear friend of mine, Dr. Herman Hay, most of you know of him, that he felt the Buddhists exemplified certain love better than anyone he'd ever been with. And I talked to Mr. John Halpert, one of the pastor-ranked ministers in the worldwide. He spent a lot of time there. But I did talk to Mr. Jonathan McNair, who conducted our program over there for several years and actually lived there. And I've talked to others and read things about them. And the Thai Buddhists can be so kind and they bow to each other. You think, oh, they just got so much love. But when something goes wrong and one of their political opponents crosses them, or religious opponents, then out come out literally long knives, and they will chop each other to bits personally while the blood is spurting out. Those people that are so kind at this certain kind of situation and seem to have so much love. What's going on? Well, they have a certain kind of gentleness that they have been taught as part of their culture, perhaps part of their nature, but they said they just shift and become something else. That's not God's love. What is God's kind of love? We have to understand the difference, and there is a big difference. Not this human love. I'll always remember when I think about personal charm, the guy that was rated the most popular and most charming fellow in Joplin Junior College when I went there in the summer, in the winter of 1948-49. I better not give you his name. I don't want to get sued, but anyway, he may, he may be dead by now because he's a couple of years older than me. But at any rate, uh, he was a nice guy, <laughs> very charming, very friendly. But he was running for student body president and very charming fellow. He said, boy, he's really be a great guy. But they carried him in, the other football players. He was on the football team, by the way. That's one thing that made him popular. And they carried him in on what looked like a papal throne. They had about four guys in front and four guys behind with these big logs and their boards, and then they had this chair set on, you know, like the popes carried around on this portable throne. And here comes Jim, what's his name, in, and he, he is sitting on the throne and has the court of a fake crown on his head, sitting on this throne. They're carrying him in like he's the pope. And on this, uh, then in his hand, is a roll of toilet paper, and he's throwing toilet paper out, not other kinds of stuff, over the crowd. And then he gets up there, and then he reads off some more toilet paper, a whole bunch of semi-dirty jokes, and he almost got thrown off the stage by the administration. I can see the teachers beginning to look funny, and here he is. He was running for president by telling these semi-dirty jokes in front of the whole crowd. He had love, <laughs> okay? He had a lot of human warmth and humor, you know, and charm, and people, the kids laughed. They thought it was great. But that's not God's love. There's a lot of difference between the human love of man and the charm and God's love. And you have to really understand that difference. You know, you meet all kinds of traveling salesmen that will just exemplify love. They'll come, oh, George, how are you? And how's your family? How's the wife? How's the kids? How's everybody? They'll remember your name and all about you. And they can sell you some wonderful snake oil, if you would like. <laughs> you know what I mean? They can sell you most anything. They have this human charm. That's not God's love. What is God's love? How do you describe God's love? Well, turn back to 1 John, if you would. 1 John, chapter 5. 1 John, chapter 5, near the end of the New Testament here. 1 John, chapter 5, verse 2. God tells us here through the beloved apostle, By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep His commandments. Well, that's kind of simple. How come you guys always come back to the commandments, people could say? 
Well, because God does. That's why <laughs> you know that you love the children of God when you love God and keep God's commandments. What does that have to do with this love? Well, that's, be, that's where true love flows from. Because if you don't love God and you don't fully realize that every human being, every human being is made in the image of God, then you cannot have the kind of love or the kind of depth of love and the kind of understanding love to people, even when they later are going to persecute some of us and try to kill us, where you can say, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They don't get it. These other human beings are made in God's image. You could say to yourself, I know that. They're all mixed up. There's a Satan, the devil. He's got them confused. I'm going to love them anyway. That doesn't mean you like them or that you like what they're doing necessarily. But in your heart, you know they're human beings, you know, and the later on you'll hope to like them and help them and serve them in the great white throne judgment, if not sooner. Maybe a lot sooner. The Philippian jailer, you know, uh, put uh, Paul in jail and held him there, he and Silas, and they sang at night, and suddenly the earthquake shook, shook the prison open, and he got scared to death. And later that night, he and his whole family were baptized and washed their wounds and let them out. You know, it could change around real quick sometime. And Paul forgave this guy, helped him, loved him right away, even though that guy may have been helped tie him up when he was being beaten by the Roman soldiers. We don't know. So things can change. Philippian Jada was made in God's image. So as you come to love God with all your heart and recognize that every human being is made in the image of God, then that can help you better keep the Ten Commandments, obviously, and those commandments involving how to love your neighbor. It says back in the book of Proverbs, he that commits adultery with a man's wife, it says lacks understanding. But in the margin, it says lacks heart. The Hebrew, if you see in my Bible, it's printed in there, but the printer's lacks heart. What do you mean by that? If you commit adultery with another man's wife, you are taking part of him that's precious, his hopes, his dreams, the mother of his children, all the things they've shared or hope to share, and you're running it down through a sewer pipe. You're running it down through a sewer pipe, and you're hurting him in a very special, remarkable way. He would probably rather you throw rocks at his head or maybe attack him with a, with a, with a knife than to do that with part of him that's precious to him. You lack heart. You just don't get it. And you lack love. That's not love. That's lust. Lusting after a woman, even before marriage. What are you doing? You are defiling this other human being that's made in God's image. And you're cheapening his or hers later relationship with their mate. Making it cheaper. It can never be the same. It can never be as special once it's dragged through the sewer pipe, so to speak. You're hurting, hurting when you do that. That's not love. That's lust. You lack love when you do those things. And so God's whole way of life is based on that. Thou shalt not bear false witness against your neighbor how much you can show hate and resentment and selfishness by lying against others and hurting them and tearing them down or getting them in trouble with the law, you know, or their job or their boss or their family or whatever by bearing false witness. What a terrible thing. That's wrong. So you have to understand what real love is. It's all tied in with the Ten Commandments and the principles of the Ten Commandments, brethren. And we do need to really think about that very, very profoundly. So we must love God in order to properly love our fellow man. 
We've got to love God first. And then we can think of man as fellow potential gods in God's family made in God's image and love them in the right way for the right reason because of a relationship with God and their relationship with God even though they're carnal and out in the world. They're still made in God's image. In 1 John 3, turning, turning back a chapter here if you would, 1 John chapter 3 and beginning in verse 14, John writes, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. What do you mean, passed from death to life? When you're cut off from God and you don't know God, you're under the death penalty automatically. And you are as surely as anything headed for a lake of fire. And that's the truth. So we pass from death to life because we love the brethren. And that's a very, very important concept to understand. He who does not love his brother abides in death. You've got to love your brother. Love means outflowing concern. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. If you sit around hating other people, you see, you're a murderer. That's the spirit of murder. You might not kill them now, but if you had the chance, maybe you would like to see them dead or would take their life or whatever. It's the spirit of murder. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. This is one of those hundreds of scriptures that show we do not have an immortal soul. You see the scripture on that. If you had an immortal soul, that would still be abiding in you if you follow me. But no murderer has eternal life abiding in me. You do not have an immortal soul. By this we know love. Here it is, another approach to it. Because he, of course Christ, God in Christ, laid down his life for us. That's outflowing concern. The great God emptied himself through his Son emptied himself of the glory, the power, the majesty, the relationship and absolute ineffable glory he had with the Father, surrounded by millions of angels and angel choirs and the sea of glass and all that, and came down here to let these little ants down here put, you know, pens in him, so to speak, like us boys used to torment grasshoppers. And those men were picking on Christ and finally thrust spears in his side and all the rest of it. Just like little boys tormenting some little insect. That's the way they treated him. They spit on him, whipped him, beat him, hit him with clubs or rods, it says on one occasion, and also received them with bows of their hand, put, put blindfolds and hit him. Prophesy if you know who hit you. Ha, 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 you so-and-so called yourself the Son of God, made fun of him over and over again. He who had been God, he who had created them, put up with that. Why? because he had genuine outflowing concern for them. These are potential members of God's family. These were potential brothers that he was going to share eternity with. So he was willing to put up with everything for them and did do that. So we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. If Christ laid down his life for us in that kind of suffering, that kind of sacrifice, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But who, or for whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? So we've got to give and to help one another. When persons are in trouble, we ought to do that. I'm glad we did do that toward the brethren in uh, the uh, Gulf region and Katrina. We ought to do better, of course, in other ways we could have helped them. But at least we did some, and I'm glad we did. And we're going to have more tragedies. And brethren, I'm not saying it's not wrong if some of you want to give to the Red Cross or United Fund, or I think actually your money goes further with the Salvation Army if you're going to choose some worldly charity 
from all I've ever read, I see they do more with less. But the best thing is to help those in the church. It says, do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Because, of course, as I've said, we could take every single dime, and I am not exaggerating at all. If you, any of your businessmen or you understand money, you know this is the truth. We could take every single penny that comes in here into the work of God, or we could have done the same thing in worldwide when they had $211 million in one year. At a time, that money was worth twice as much as it is now, when the dollar was worth twice as much. And put it over in India. So we're going to save the Indians. No, their way of life would have brought them right back where they were within a very few hours, probably, or a few days at the most, because they were breaking God's laws. They had these big, fat cows wandering around, eating uh, the vegetables and eating the food and, and so on. And they wouldn't, they were just, their children were starving because they worshipped the sacred cow and they would, all kinds of stuff. If you've ever read the book Mother India by Catherine Mayo, quite a revelation of their way of life. That's what's hurting them more than anything when you really understand it. False religion. Terrible damage because of that false religion. Now they're getting away from religion and getting more computers over there. So the less religion they seem to have, the better off they are. <laughs> because maybe no religion is better than false religion, frankly. It really is then their mind can be more open to the truth eventually. But at any rate, uh, you know, our main thrust is not to give our, our money to the world or pagan nations who don't understand, but we should help our brothers, those who are being called, our own brothers in the church and co-workers and immediate neighbors, yes. If you are see a man by the wayside like the Good Samaritan did, right in the path, it didn't say the Good Samaritan traveled hundreds of miles down to down to uh, Egypt and found some people starving down there. It never says Paul or Jesus Christ took up offerings to go on and help out the people in Africa. They had people starving way back then at that time. Of course they did. But basically it's for those who understand or are being called now. That's our first responsibility. So whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother, everybody's our brother in a general sense, but especially those in the church in need and shuts up his heart, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. We can talk and talk and talk. Let us not love just in talking about it, but in deed and in truth. And we love not just by giving physical goods, by all kinds of things, as I'll describe as we go along and perhaps describe in future sermons. But we do need to love in deed and in truth. And that's one of the main signs to the world that we are God's people. And one of the main things that will encourage others as they hear about us and new brethren who begin to come in among us. Very, very important. Turn now, if you would, over to chapter 4, 1 John 4 now, if you would. We'll get a little bit of this tea here. First John 4 and verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, He loved us so much, He gave Himself for us. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. See, God the Father and Christ literally live in us if we do our part. And His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He's given us of His Spirit. And that way, we know we've had that outside help. And we've seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. 
whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he and God, of course, confesses in the right way. As Jesus said himself, Why call you me, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Really confess by the way you live, not just by your voice. We've known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. Wonderful verse, verse 16. God is love. That's the number one thing about God. Brethren, just pussy love or just the love of the world or just outpouring concern apart from power might be dangerous. In other words, the devil could take over. I know that. And yet love is a greater force in the end because God is love and that's going to triumph in the end. The true God who has real love, total love, but also backs it up with supreme wisdom, supreme wisdom and supreme power so that no bad guy can take over those who have just love and may not have that power to back it up. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness and they have judgment. You see, when Christ comes again, if you have really been serving and giving and helping, then you may not have perfect faith and think, oh, I know I'm this and that, but you'll have a basic quiet confidence that I've done pretty well the best I could. I know I didn't do perfectly. Some people tell me, you know, I'll say, we're trying to, well, we know you're doing the best you can, Mr. Meredith. And I often stop them. I don't always to try to butt in, but I'll say, well, I never do the best I can. I know that, but I try. I don't think all of us do the best we can every hour of every day. I wish we did, you know, just going like that. So we all slip up, we waste some time, we have some vanity, we have some selfishness, we have some lust, we have some greed, we have some human nature. God knows that. But overall, we're trying pretty hard, we hope. If you're trying pretty hard, you'll have a basic confidence that God is there and He knows that, and you'll have boldness and they have judgment. There is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. Perfect love. Now, none of us have perfect love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves torment. But he who fears has not been made perfect in love. If people have a sense of fear of God like a monster and they're kind of afraid that God, he's going to get them when he comes back, that indicates they're probably not walking with God. There's a sense of deep guilt there, you know. But perfect love would mean you love God. You, you know he's there. You know he's good. You're trying to serve him. You have this outflowing concern for him. And this kind of thing. Perfect love casts out fear. Someone that really loves someone as tremendously, they don't have that fear. I've sometimes used, and you may have heard this, I don't want to belabor it, but the example of a mother, and especially a mother with a child that's going to be executed. Often when a man is to be executed, if his mother's still alive, she may be one of the few people that's right there, and she'll go right in with him and say, oh, she doesn't care what he's done. He may have raped 15 women and killed 10 men and everything else. He's her little boy. And if she could, she'd be right there holding his hands while he's dying. She has no fear. It's just her child. And so this total love, that's a wonderful thing. She doesn't fear him. Sometimes some men go insane and nuts and their mother should fear them at that point in time. You know what I mean? And fear what could happen and back off until the authorities can get him back under control or get him uh, drugged in a sense of calming down any demon that's there or whatever. But that kind of love is sometimes in a mother, and that's a wonderful, one of the most wonderful aspects of human love, that total love that a mother will have for her child. Perfect love casts out fear. We love him because he first loved us. 
God loved us and He gave His Son for us and died for us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, has this deep animosity toward another woman or another man in the church, he is a liar, for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he possibly, you might say, love God whom he has not seen? Because if you could see God and He was there, He might correct you or cause you to be put down a lot more than uh, some other person appears to do. And this commandment we have from Him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. So we've got to realize that, brethren. And we want to realize, too, if you think about it, some of you might disagree with my example here without thinking, but frankly, if God were here, okay, He was here. He was here in the person of Jesus Christ. Did everyone agree with him because he was so perfect? Did everyone love him because he had such love? No. They killed him instead. They killed him instead. He said, you snakes, you vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He told some of the religious leaders of his day. Wow. He told it like it was. Yet he had to wake them up and the people around them to see that that kind of pharisaical nitpicking approach was not God's love at all and was these people were putting themselves in place of God and hurting others and harming others. And to help others and to help them wake up too, he, he told it the way it was very clearly. He didn't cuss. He just says snakes and vipers. Snakes are not bad. God made snakes. You know, We don't always love them. Maybe they're not human beings, but they're some creatures of God. So he called them, in a sense, what they were in that sense. So we've got to lovingly forgive each other and forgive others. And we've got to forgive others, let's say, who may be at times hurt and confused and who've left the church, for instance. I know I've heard of some examples out in the field of some people who had left and then they started to come back and this one young woman tried to start to come back and just found that she was kind of isolated, kind of shunned. And she dropped out for a while and then came back to the church. And maybe it wasn't deliberate. I don't know. I've talked to the minister about it. But people kind of stood apart from her like she was a leper. And they didn't invite her places. And, well, boy, she's been a bad person. She left the church and made some mistakes. But she came back. Well, brethren, if the ministers let someone come back in the church, they probably know about the problem, you know, 99% of the cases. And if they come back... Who are you to say, well, you're not fit to come back. I'm so righteous, I can't be around you. No, you'd better love them and say, oh, it's good to see you back, Joanne or Harry or whatever their name is. Be glad they're back. Love them, receive them. In fact, be on the alert for people like that. They may need special encouragement. They may need special attention from us when they've been out for a while and come back. And we've got to really learn to forgive each other and forgive other people that have made mistakes and bring them back. But at any rate, it's much better to err on the side of love. It's much better to err on the side of kindness and the kind of mercy than to just say, we've got these rules or this man hurt me and I'm never going to forgive. I'm going to hold it against him and hate him and hate him and hate him. No, if God felt that way, if Christ felt that way, I would be all set for the lake of fire. And I think you would too. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we have to really understand that profoundly, brethren. And so, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. 
For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can you love the invisible God whom you have not seen? And this commandment we have from him that he who loves God must love his brother also. So we've got part of love is being willing to forgive. Forgive and forget in that sense and move on. I don't say you totally forget, but God puts our sins away and he does not bring them to mind. He could bring them to mind, but he does choose us not to continually dwell on them and bring them to mind. And that's what we need to do, to love and forgive people that have left the church, to love and forgive people that have made mistakes, to love and forgive people if they come in late to the church, so to speak, and say, how come you stayed so long and you stayed in that apostasy? Well, if they stayed in the midst of the, the apostasy that the Tkach has caused in the church a long, long time, we may not make, bring them into the highest levels of the administration or the ministry, you see. They may have been seared, their minds may have been seared to agree by staying around these wrong attitudes so long, it's going to take them years to get their minds straightened around again. But there's a difference between ordaining someone, there's a difference between putting them in a high position and welcoming them back as a brother in the church and literally hugging them if you know them well enough and encouraging them and loving them and serving them and, and doing everything you can for them. The big difference in that. Turn to Luke chapter 15 if you would. Luke chapter 15 now. And I'm going to begin reading in the very, uh, very first verse here. Luke chapter 15 verse 1. And... Uh, here is a very famous passage I think you all know. Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Christ, and the Pharisees and scribes saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Well, frankly, when you think about it, Jesus Christ was surrounded by carnal people. Have you ever thought of that? There was not one single converted human being who worked with Christ during his lifetime, unless it was perhaps John the Baptist, but he didn't really work right with him. You know, he wasn't one of his disciples. He was over here somewhere most of the time. The disciples weren't converted until the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was with them, you know, but not yet in them. So Christ was constantly dealing with unconverted people, including Peter. That's why Peter cursed and swore and denied Christ three times at the very end of his ministry. He wasn't converted yet. Of course he wasn't converted or he wouldn't have done that. And so they said, this man receives sinners and even eats with them. So he spoke this parable. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? God wants to bring back the one lost sheep. There are a lot of lost sheep out there, brethren. I helped work with them for decades. Mr. Partian did. Mr. Ames did, I'm sure. I mean, indirectly. I think we've worked with thousands of them through our articles, through our sermons, and all this kind of thing. They were in the Worldwide Church of God, and they're all confused. They're deeply confused. They used to have 150,000 at the Feast of Tabernacles. And where are they? I understand three or 400 right here in Charlotte were in the Worldwide Church. Where are they? So as they begin to drift back as these things in prophecy begin to speed up with greater power, and they get scared, and they think, what's going on? And it began to realize as they're somehow put in touch with us by God himself through circumstances, maybe accidentally, quote unquote, question mark accidentally, see our program or something else, you know, and God guides them that way. And they come in, let's welcome them with open arms, with open arms. Some of them will have a beard, that's fine. Some of the young men will have long hair, that's fine. 
They didn't have to remain that way forever, but we don't need to worry about it. Don't worry about those little things. Christ got worrying about the big ten. Murder, adultery, lying, stealing. He's not worried about a woman having long fingernails. Maybe her fingernails are too long for some of you. And for me too on occasion, you know. So what? So what? We're reaching this whole world out there with all their pagan customs and ways of dressing and doing and this and that. If they're beginning to learn the truth, let's love them. Let's not confront them with a bunch of man-made rules that go beyond God's rules. God's rules are ten commandments. And we don't want to keep adding to those and judge people by that. So we've got to understand that. Anyway, so he wants to bring back the lost. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, this one sheep. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends saying, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. Now remember, brethren, it does involve repentance. If someone comes back in our church, in God's church, they may not be fully repentant when they walk in the door. I'm not saying they have to be perfect when they walk in the door, but if they come back with a hostile attitude and argue and try to cause division, that's different. But they come back and they acknowledge by their presence and by their personality and their actions they're trying to learn and they're sorry and they got confused. That's wonderful. And then maybe over a period of months sitting here, they will come to more complete repentance through the sermons. And your love, which does not turn them off and make them feel put down the minute they walk in and so on. What woman having a Ten silver coins, if she uses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house and look diligently until she finds it. And when she's found it, she calls her friends and said, I rejoice because I found this piece I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God. This is kind of interesting. There apparently is a literally a scene in heaven. And Christ, I don't think, I think these things are real. You may think I'm naive, but I I think these things are real. I think God means what he says and says what he means. There's a heavenly court and there are angels there. And there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're literally rejoicing. Another potential member of the very family of God who will live forever throughout the eons into eternity is turning back to his creator or her creator. Then he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger one said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that I have. And so he divided to them, you know, their inheritance. And not many days after, the young guy wandered off, journeyed to a far country, and wasted his possessions with prodigal living. And the indication is he was in wine, women, and song, drunkenness, adultery, fornication, whatever. And when he'd spent all there, he rose in severe famine and he had to feed swine. And finally, he was so hungry, he would be glad to eat the husks the, the hogs were, were eating. And when he came to himself, President Woodrow Wilson wrote a book on that one time. When a man comes to himself, sometimes it takes a certain something to wake people up. They have a, an epiphany, you know, a special moment of revelation. Wow, I'd better do something about the truth. When a man comes to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare and perish with hunger? And I perish with hunger. Even these servants over there are better off than I am. 
I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. Now, that's the attitude. That's the perfect attitude. They won't always have that perfect attitude. You know what I mean? When they walk in the door, if they've been out a while or done things that are bad. But eventually, we hope they'll come to that. I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I'll just be anything. Please help me. I don't want to starve. But the father doesn't have the same degree of compassion and mercy and tenderness that a mother has normally. But the father can have a lot of love. And this father did. And this father represents God the father. This father directly represents God the father and how he does. And he arose and came to the father. And when the father was still a great way off, Apparently, you know, in those days they could see the way a man was walking way down the ways and everything indicates they had really good eyes back then. I'm not exaggerating. I know when I was hunting deer in West Texas for a while, four different times, where they assigned Mrs. Coston to me. Now, her husband was nearby on a high ridge, but she was a ranch lady and uh, she she could shoot deer from her front porch. So she didn't even bring a gun. She'd go along and she'd say, there they are. She saw them 10 times quicker than I did, so I could she'd be able to shoot a deer. She'd point them out. Then I'd get my four-power scope on them, and then I could shoot a deer. But there, people that live out, outdoors like that, they can see a long way off, and maybe he had servants waiting, and then they signaled him it was his son. We don't know, but he saw his son way off. And he arose and came, and when his father saw him, he had compassion. There's my son! And he ran. He didn't just walk. This father ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. As the men used to kiss each other on each cheek, you know, in the Middle East. In a loving way. And the son said, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and am no worthy, to, no more worthy to be called your son. But the father said, Cool it. <laughs> I still love you. Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. You vegetarians out there, <clears throat> here's God the Father having meat. <laughs> and that's okay. All right. I'm not, I don't think any of you are vegetarians, but occasionally we have it. And we don't want to condemn them. That's another, just a human weakness. And it's not a sin though. But anyway, God the Father who is pictured having a fatted calf because this man was the type of the father. And let's eat and be merry, so grateful. For this my son was dead and is alive and lost and is found. And the older son came and he was jealous. But the father said, It's right that we should make merry and be glad. For your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. Tremendous mercy. Tremendous compassion. Tremendous love, outflowing concern. Let's bring them back. Love them, help them, hug them, bring them in. That's the attitude we should have to new people who show up at the door of this church. This is the attitude we want to have in helping them come to our home as best we can and do this and do that every way we can. We won't all do it perfectly. I don't have a big dinner for people every night, you know, or, or whatever. I'm 75 and a half years old. I get so tired sometimes. A lot of you know this. I'll come and sit down with you after the service because I've whispered to some of you. If I see some older, some of you older folks, Mr. and Mrs. McNaughton, and I'll come and sit down and I'll quietly whisper, I want someone to sit with. I'm so tired. <laughs> so, so I don't entertain quite as much as I used to or my wife, but we need to do more. She and I, in fact, she was talking about it just today, having some people over tomorrow. 
And uh, we want to do more, and all of us need to do more and help people, encourage them. And all of you younger people can get in and do it, and we need to get in and do it for the younger people too and help them because the younger people need special help and encouragement in this messed up society. Sometimes they're left out in that way. So bring back the center with compassion. Brethren, we used to have rules in Ambassador College that were mainly good. I'm not putting them down. I didn't make them, Mr. Armstrong did, but I helped back them up about as much as anybody. And a lot of the older people know that. I was right in the middle of backing them up, you know, and was honoring Mr. Armstrong in that way. And I think those rules were basically good rules in a structured environment in that time. But those rules don't apply to the church now in the sense that you've got to have your hair cut just a certain way and women have to do this and that a certain way. Or if they have their dress way up around their uh, whatever and, uh, <laughs> you know, way, way up so that they look lewd, that's different. But if a girl has a slip, you see some leg, well, you could go to the beach and see a lot more than that. You know that. So don't get alarmed by it. Everybody has legs. And everybody has all these other things. We don't want to be watching, watching, gotcha, gotcha. You see, that can really turn people off and hurt them before they're able to come in lovingly, learn the spiritual truths of God and the way of God. The flip side of the ambassador rules, if we apply them to people in the church that are not in that structured environment, have not had all the assemblies, have not had all the forums, have not had all the... Uh, meetings in the dorms and all the rest instruct them about this. They can be deeply hurt and turned off in a hurry. They haven't heard all that stuff. And that's not the stuff God talks about in His Word. If you find it there, you let me. I've never found it. The principles, yes, of decency and all are there, but people have to learn gradually how those things work out. But we may have given brethren, even in the church and some of our ministry, a judgmental a judgmental type of approach in a real-life situations where people can be hurt because they're new and we're dealing with sinners that are coming in out of the world and so on. Today's youth especially need encouragement and they need forgiveness and they need patience and they need mercy. They've grown up in a rotten, rotten society, brethren. And my wife was making me, not making me, but kind of encouraging me to watch uh, Oprah the other night, Oprah Winfrey, she had this uh, recent episode where she had this woman and man there and, and the woman took the lead and the man kind of went out and let the woman get away with it. And my wife was, of course, very saying in that way herself, was not for it at all. But the woman pushed the thing and her son's 16th birthday, some of you may have seen that episode, and had a stripper brought in had a stripper brought in. And so the stripper first took off her top and then she took off the bottom and she was just totally naked in front of these teenage kids and and uh, they described some of it. It was just awful. And foolishly, they took pictures of it and sent it to some photography place to be developed and they turned it into the police. The, came, the police came out and arrested the man and the woman for child, whatever it was, and uh, indecency and mis so on, which is pretty good for the parents. So Oprah heard about it, got them on, and the woman was trying to sort of justify it. It wasn't an Oprah launched right into her. And they had a woman psychologist on there who launched right into her. And Oprah and this woman psychologist, both carnal from our point of view, they don't understand, but they both said Hollywood is really ruining our society. That we're a, 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 we're a, I forget the wording, we're a decadent society. We're a ruined society. 
That's what they said on the Oprah Winfrey show. They're realizing that. A lot of people, even in the world, realize we're like ancient Rome. We don't feed people to the lions, but we take our little babies, unborn babies, and butcher them to the tune of 45 million of them. Can you imagine that? That's awful. It's hard to even imagine that kind of thing. How many little babies have been butchered and sucked out of their mother's womb and chopped up and all this kind of thing. It's just awful and our so-called Christian nation. So our youth has been growing up in that. And they've seen all this stuff on TV and, and, and movies that I never had to see. So I can have mercy on them to that extent. They've got to learn to get back on the track, but still we've got to help them. And let's all try to encourage our youth. And I want to ask our leaders here uh, in the church, and we're, we're getting uh, working on a whole program for that across the whole nation where we want to have some of our young people help pass out song books and Occasionally lead in prayer and, and do some of the deacon's duties and, and, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pyle and, and Mrs. Nestor and the other deacons and deaconesses don't have to do it all. They can get some rest. It's okay. <laughs> and they won't mind. Let these young people have part. And we want to do that more and more. And, uh, that's so important. We want to try to serve everyone in the church. Back and turn to Acts 20, if you would, brethren. Acts chapter 20 at this point and, uh, something you're familiar with, but, very important. Beginning in verse 25, Paul was helping the church here, the elders at Ephesus, seeing them for the last time, knowing he might not ever see them again. He said, Indeed, now I know that you all among you whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God will see my face no more. He knew he would probably be martyred, apparently, the way he wrote this. Therefore, I testify, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. I'm not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And brethren, that's part of love too. We've got in love to try to declare to you the whole counsel of God every way we can. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd who? The Catholic Church, the Lutheran Church, the Church of England? No, the Church of God as it's called, in the Bible, twelve times. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. He's warning them of these guys that were going to come along. They came in among us after Mr. Armstrong's death. They came in back then, and then the final thing happened in the late 80s and early 90s. Also from among yourselves men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. I don't think Paul was exaggerating. I think he literally did that night and day. He had Bible studies at night and preached on the weekends and he'd say, please brethren, don't give up. Hang on. Times are tough. Don't give up. Don't turn aside. Please, for your own sake. He pleaded with them night and day with tears. I wish I'd done even more of that, you know, back in Worldwide. But I didn't realize how it was going to happen. But it did happen. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and the word of His grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who are with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this. He set that example at a time that, of course, he couldn't carry on a worldwide work where you had to work all day long to get out the gospel around the world. 
he could just have Bible studies with them at night and services on the Sabbath. So he was able to have a job part-time as a tent maker during some of the weekdays by laboring like this, that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give, more blessed to give than to receive. The whole thing of love is outflowing concern. You give of yourself. You give and give and help and serve. And you try to think, how can I serve this other human being? And you go all out to try to do that in every way you can. When a young man is interested in a young woman, yes, he, he should understand that she's attractive. She's beautiful to him. They have this chemistry. But above and beyond that, he should think, how can I help her? How can I serve her? I want to protect her physically from harm. I want to provide for her. I want to take care of her. I want to consider her physical needs, her mental needs to encourage her mind development, her emotional needs, her spiritual needs. I want to give to her a happy life. And the young woman should think, how can I serve this man? How can I help him physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, be his help and be his inspire and enrich his life? And if each of you comes into marriage with that idea, you see, then marriage is not, I'll come this far and meet you halfway. No, marriage is not 50-50. Real happy marriage is 100%, 100%. I want to give 100% to you the best I can, and I hope you will give 100% to me the best you can. Each of us, the different sexes, giving to the other the best way we can. And if we really do that, that's a wonderful marriage then it's 100% give, 100% love. And that's what God wants because that's a type, of course, of Christ in the church. Why do all that? How can we possibly do all that? Well, one why and one answer to this is back in 1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians, if you turn that, I'm sorry, chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, in verse 19, do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Our bodies belong to God. They're not our bodies. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you and you have which whom you have from God and you are not your own. You do not belong to yourself if you're honestly a Christian. People say, well, I'm going to get offended. Or people, no, it's not you. You belong to God. You're not even supposed to think it's me and my my house, my family, here's what I want. What does God want me to do with this body? What does God want me to do with this time? What does Christ want me to do as he lives his life within me? Because I belong to him. You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Yes, eat good food, exercise, take care of yourself, think positive thoughts, avoid bodily injury. So you don't exercise and eat good and then get hit by a truck. <laughs> All those things. Take care of your body. That's very important. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's the most important thing. The spirit in man, that spirit essence joined with our human mind, wherein reside God's spirit and the right attitudes and the right elements of character is in our spirit. It belongs to God. And we've got to really, really understand that. Therefore, we should give ourselves to God and give ourselves to our brethren who are his people. We do not belong to ourselves all day long. And everything we think, yes, our thoughts, everything we say, 
Yes, our conversation, everything we do, all of our actions, we should try with God's help, with Christ in us, to reflect, reflect Jesus Christ. That's so important. And that is love. Love toward God and helps us perfectly then love our neighbors in the right way. Turn, if you would, to Proverbs chapter 24. Proverbs chapter 24, something I use, I think, more than any other minister. Not that that makes me better, but it's one of my unusual favorite verses, sometimes in connection with the offertory, but it's a very important principle here. Proverbs 24, verse 10. God put it back here in the Proverbs even. <clears throat> if you faint in the day of adversity, what day of adversity? Well, any day. But boy, the biggest day of adversity in human history is about on us right now. Your strength is small. Deliver those who are drawn toward death. Hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. What slaughter? Well, the greatest slaughter in the history of the universe and the history of this earth, I should say, in human beings is about to happen. As Jesus said, there's never been a time of trouble like that, no, or nor ever shall be, and unless God cut it short, no flesh would remain alive. Matthew 24, verses 21 and 22. Then there will be great tribulation. This is that time. If you say, surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who keeps your soul, does he not do it or know it? And will he not render to every man according to his deeds, or as the King James says, according to his works? Here we are at the end of an age, and the greatest slaughter in human history is just ahead of us, and we see United Europe coming together, as I quoted from this article in the Daily Mail from Europe in the latest co-worker letter, if you read that, we're right on the verge of some huge things over the next five to ten years, brethren. We really, really are, and I hope you understand it. He who keeps your soul, does he not know it? And will not he render according to your works? How much you're trying to reach out, how much you're praying, studying, fasting, meditating, and trying to give the best you can. Some women usually send in their garden money, and some send in them allowance. Their husband lives them, and some do this and that. Every bit as might helps to get out the gospel. But the main thing, I'm not trying to get you to give more. Maybe you give all you can. I'm just saying pray about it. But God wants you to have your heart in His work of getting out the warning while we have the opportunity. God is watching us and that is love. We want to help these people. We want to reach these people before it's too late. And that's certainly one of the greatest aspects of love today and one of the big things we can do. Turn now, if you would to Matthew uh, chapter 25. Matthew, brethren, and chapter 25. I get a little more tea here. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate one from another as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, the goats on his left. Then the king will come and say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Think about that. Going way, way back, our father in heaven decided to make man in his image. And he made us male and female, both of us, in his image to be His children forever, to bear His image, to bear His name, to bear His character, to be part 
of the glorified spirit family, which will live throughout all eternity and help the Father and help the Son rule the entire universe from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. Yes, do we do that to each other? We have people moving in here. Sometimes they've lost their jobs. Sometimes they don't have a car. We want to help them. We don't just say we can't help you. Let's say we will help you. We'll find a way to help you. You gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. Sick and you visited me. Maybe we're not visiting the sick as much as we should. Each of you needs to ask yourself that question. Each of you brethren around the world, I'm preaching to all of you out there. Let's do this, brethren, all around the world. This is a sign, a vital sign that we're God's people. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink or a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? When did we do all this? And the king will answer, Surely I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least, doesn't make any difference. Some young person that's all confused and hurt because they got off on the wrong track and they finally wake up and come back to the church. Some older person that's sickly and needs extra help. Some brother that stayed way too long in the apostasy. And yes, they don't have everything straight yet, but somehow God is bringing them back among us. Help them! Help them. Let's do better at that. Me, you, all of us. So, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least, you did it to me. You're doing it to Jesus Christ. Then he will say to those on his left hand who said, well, we just live with the rules and, and uh, you know, we don't let anyone around with long hair or we don't let new people come in if they act worldly or something like that. He'll say to them, Cursed are you, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And the fire is not prepared for human beings. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. But God is going to cause many human beings to go in there, those who will not serve, those who will not help, those who will not forgive, those who will not reach out. We've got to have this attitude, brethren. We've just got to, got to, got to because it is one of the most important things in the entire universe that we have the love of God. You know that. That's the most important thing talked about from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The love of God, the commandments of God, and the commandments are love. This is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His love flows down the riverbed of the Ten Commandments. Outflowing concern to God and worship and adoration outflowing concern and kindness and warmth and affection and decency and consideration for other human beings. That is God's love. I was hungry and you gave me no food, thirsty, no drink. Stranger, you didn't take me in, sick in prison, you didn't visit me. Then they will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it not uh, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away, excuse me, into everlasting punishment. Not punishing. They're not eternally tormented, jumping around in pain. The punishment is death. Death in the lake of fire. Eternal punishment. But the righteous into eternal life. 
So we want to really realize how important this is and let our love every way we can and every other way I've described and other ways I haven't had time to describe, <laughs> let it flow out. We should be more kind and friendly and charming. We're not all made into Jack Benny's or Bob Hope's or the, you know, the wonderful friendly comedian types, whatever, or the hail fellows well met, but we still want to learn to be friendly as best we can. And some of us are more strict. Some of you old people are tired or hurting at times. I have an intense personality, you know. I sometimes frighten you. I look right into your soul. <laughs> and I can't help that always, but I need to do better. And we all need to do better to try to help each other and lay down our lives for one another. And certainly we can work on that. And with God's help, we will grow. Turn again, turn again one more time to First John. First John, brethren, and uh, turn to uh, chapter uh, 3 here. 1 John 3 and verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso has this world's goods and sees his brethren need, not willing to help and to serve and to give and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue. Don't just talk about it, but in deed and in truth. So let's learn to love in deed and in truth. And that is a sign that we are the people of God that shows the outsiders as they're around us, that shows new people coming in. And, of course, God wants us to show that sign in addition to showing Him that we're willing to sacrifice and keep His Sabbath that points to the true God as the Creator. But this is a special sign to others that men may know as is implied in that very wording. Let the sign of love be magnified in the living church of God. Brethren, we are preparing to share eternity with each other. Eternity. So we want to be sure we have that love because we're going to share eternity in the family of God, a family based upon love and joy and peace. Thank God for that.